when conditions change and you need to have a significant adjustment in how these buildings function, how these neighborhoods function. That's not going to happen with a passive buy and hold strategy that just says, oh, we're going to wait for this thing to lease up and just ignore it. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So here we are. It's uh, June 8th of 2023, and uh, it feels rather apocalyptic. I think the the wildfires in eastern Canada have uh, really made the East Coast pretty unbearable. Uh, I can't even go outside without a mask right now, and not because of COVID. Uh, But it also feels somewhat apocalyptic. We've gone through a few bank failures in the last few months. Uh, A lot of uh, institutional owners of uh, real estate assets are starting to talk to the banks quite seriously and perhaps even returning uh, some of the assets that are not performing, especially in office. Um, and there's a lot of questions about where do we go from here? No matter how many CEOs insist on people coming back to the office, they still aren't coming back to the office. So we we have some real issues with our downtowns, and many of them are being described as um, rather apocalyptic terms in terms of how dead some of our downtowns are, um, which is having knock-on effects throughout uh, um, the economies of these these places. So I was actually particularly glad about a month ago to see uh, uh, an opinion piece uh, in the New York Times uh, written by a good friend of AFIRE, Ed Glacier, and, and his colleague, Carlo Ratti from MIT, uh, about uh, you know basically trying to, to fit what the issue is and how things are changing in our cities. And it reminded me that we really should talk to Ed again. So um, Ed Glacier, obviously, he's the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics and Chair of the Department of Economics at Harvard University, uh, frequent speaker on topics of, uh, of the city, where it's going, urban economics. He's the author of two very uh, popular books and perhaps my favorite books on real estate, uh, Triumph of the City and Survival of the City, which just came out a couple of years ago. Thank you, Ed, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. It's, it's always great to talk to you, and it's always great to talk to AFIRE. It's interesting to me how our thoughts have changed just in the last couple of years, and, and nothing like a global pandemic to kind of kick you in the head. Uh, so that's happened. And you have been a proponent, a very, very visible proponent in the world, and not just amongst us real estate geeks, but you know, throughout the world in terms of the, the triumph of the city in terms of the book that you wrote several years ago um, and how the cities are a positive, net positive for all of us. The density is good. We want density, um, even though the density of New York City is probably half of what it was in 1914. Uh, we still enjoy great value from the density that we have in our cities, except uh, when there's a pandemic. Uh, so how has your thinking changed uh, from, say, 2020 and today? Uh, in terms of how the cities work, what the challenges are for the city, where do we go from here? So I, I think it's helpful to perhaps start with a bit of data. So for the revised version of survival, we put together a ranking of the 50 largest metropolitan areas in the U.S. And we ranked them on uh, an average of wage growth, employment growth, uh, housing permit growth, and housing price growth um, using the Federal Housing Finance Agency repeat sales index. And we formed this index. We looked at who the winners and the losers were. And it was quite interesting. I mean, much of it looked like the past 50 years on steroids. 
So it didn't look like it was a it was a complete change. The cities that did well during this period tended to be, you know, the Sunbelt powerhouses. Austin led the list, followed by by Phoenix. Um, and, you know, these are places that have been dynamic for a long time. I think, you know, to me, the the clear sort of you know thriving local economies are those that combine the Sunbelt's warmth, relatively pro-business policies, relatively pro-housing policies with a strong skill base, right? With a, with a, I mean, those, those are, you know, my two-factor model of urban growth is you need a whole bunch of smart people and you need kind of rules that think it's okay to start a business and to, and to make it thrive. And both of those are, are very present in a city like uh, Austin. Um, and most of the, you know, 17 out of the top 25 were all in the Sun Belt. You did see a fact that wage growth was sharpest in the most educated areas. So right. uh, San Jose and Sa- San Francisco, which are very troubled office markets still, uh, they are places that had you know the most spectacular wage growth over the, the pandemic. But when you look at the bottom 25, sort of numbers 15 to, 20, 15 to 22 are sort of familiar Rust Belt you know, cities that have been in decline for decades. So Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo. Mm-hmm. But the real shock for me, was that at the very bottom of the list were Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. Um, the only one that came below those those three was New Orleans, which is, uh, again, qualifies as a, as a deep, long-term, uh, troubled uh, metropolitan area. And that's really, to me, what's different. So if you look at the past 50 years, Chicago, New York, Washington have sort of skated above the rest of the Northeast. They skated above the, the the Midwest because the large scale of their office market has been a tremendous asset. Because you know talent has gone to this sort of you know, big central area where you know the future is boundless and you can figure out how to do something really amazing. For the last three years, those vast office markets have been a drag, and it's you know they are the places Washington uh, I think you know is particularly extreme in this because the federal government feels very little pressure to get everyone back to the office. Um, but they're the places which sort of you get these empty corridors in uh, the core downtown areas. And, and you know, the the as of May 31, the the figures from the castle system occupancy numbers, you know, uh, New York City is still down uh, 40, 53 percent from before the pandemic. So it's, it's less than half. Um, Philadelphia is at 40 percent. Uh, relative to pre-pandemic, San Jose is at 37%. So these office markets are still remarkably empty. And I, I think that's, I think to me, the most surprising thing that I, I really expected office to come back a little bit, little bit sooner. Now, the other thing that is, again, it's not out of character with what's happened over the past 50 years, but it feels even more vital than uh, today, which is the urban role as a place of pleasure as a playground, as a consumer city, right? And when I've, you know, and just think about, you know, when the pandemic started easing a bit, right? Many people were not eager to go back to their office. Everybody was eager to go back to a restaurant. Everybody was eager to go back to see their friends live. Everyone was eager to go back and enjoy those urban pleasures. And I think for me, um, my takeaway from this is that the need for cities to really focus on quality of life issues in terms of the, the sort of making sure they can actually provide uh, those sort of centers of pleasure, the more that cities can make sure that they have a permitting environment that enables the kind of businesses that bring pleasure to open easily is important. And I think in terms of the building stock itself, you're better off with more mixing between residential and office. Uh, and I think that's even become more important than it was in the past. And sort of the, the you know, monoculture that we've traditionally had in these large downtowns, which sort of worked 
um, I think that's become even more more of a drag over the past three years than it had been. And I think I think thinking about the real importance of integrating mixed use throughout the city that's that's risen in importance in my in my thinking. You know, I love that you use the term monoculture because certainly that's something that agriculture has been aware of for some time. You can grow very fast in a monoculture. You can have great success. However, you are less flexible. Um, And if there's any shock to the system, the monoculture is going to be the the hardest recovery to have uh, because you don't have that the, 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 the advantage of all the other uses happening at the same time. It was pointed out to me by Brian Klinsick over at uh, LaSalle that you look at the neighborhoods and cities that have bounced back the fastest, and they are the most diverse in terms of use and in terms of the people that are there, in terms of the kinds of things that people can do there. So, you know, compare the West End of London, perhaps to Canary Wharf, and you see, you know, two entirely different stories in terms of, of where those cities go. And there's somehow... We're being reminded, just like the farmers, that we cannot afford, in terms of resiliency, to to have monoculture be the dominant form in real estate. Having spent two of the last three days in the West End of, of London, I can tell you that the West End of London feels completely recovered to me. Right. It feels like it's 100% back. The Absolutely. And you think about, you know, some actually, to a certain extent, Midtown Manhattan feels, even though you don't have the same office population, you certainly have the, the tourist population and people just having fun. Now, part of what we've seen in terms of the institutional appetite for different markets, Austin was at the top of the list for international investors two years ago for where they wanted to acquire new assets, where they wanted to do development. Austin has dropped down in our rankings over the last couple of years, and the main markets like New York, London, Paris, Boston, are sitting at the top of their wish lists in terms of where they would like to acquire assets. Do you think there is a return to prominence for some of these, what we used to call gateway markets, uh, versus these kind of smaller, high-growth uh, Sunbelt markets. Do you think there's th- th- this suggests that perhaps we're going to come back, or is this just a blip? I would always pay attention to what investors are, are thinking. Uh, I think it's uh, – and if you see a lot – if you're seeing more interest in uh, New York assets, um, that's, that's an interesting fact. I mean, certainly there um, – you know the residential market has been less soft relative to the uh, to the office market. Mm-hmm. Um, the the and you know we've had a lot of discussion uh, about you know the ability to convert from res- from office to residential, which tends to be a, a difficult thing. Uh, can you say a little bit more about what type of asset class these investors are, are particularly pointing to? Is it is it is it office? It is not office. I mean, right now I think everyone's holding on office. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Right, but certainly multifamily industrial. Uh, data centers. Everyone wants a piece of that. I mean, these are high growth things that are happening. And and residential, we're in the midst of a, a housing shortage that has been exasperated over the last few years. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of work to do. And certainly as people are wanting to live in places uh, where there is housing shortages, uh, there is opportunity certainly for that. But, you know, I think it's interesting. You mentioned, and a lot of folks talk about how the conversion from office to residential is difficult. I mean, we all talk about how difficult it is and the, it, how do we pencil it out? How do we physically make these buildings work? And yet something like, uh, what was the figure that I, that I saw? Uh, 40% of the multifamily units in lower Manhattan uh, built since 1990 were actually conversions. That uh, this has already been going on. I think part of the part of the problem we have sometimes is we ascribe to COVID just about everything that is a surprise to us. And yet these things have been happening. You know, the GSA in Washington, D.C. was pulling back from use of office space 10 years ago. Um, And we've seen, you know, vacancies rise, not just during COVID, but over the last 10 years 
um, in Washington, D.C., that GSA has discovered that, hey, we don't need to put all these people in an office and we just don't we can't get enough office for them to, to be there. So it, it's interesting to me about how these things have been in place for a long time. Conversion to office is nothing. A conversion of office to multifamily is nothing new. Um, our biggest problem, it, it may be just that we can't imagine ourselves there yet, but there's certainly other issues as well. Well, if we want to go back even further historically, like the, the conversion of industrial to residential was a huge part of like the story of the 70s and 80s. But in terms that of, uh, conversion took 50 years. I mean, we didn't even make mm-hmm. it legal for people to live in a loft <laughs> until 1976. I mean, we did it illegally. And then we did, and, and you know, and, and uh, Jim Costello over at MSCI has really pointed out that, you know, this may happen if New York City doesn't, you know, kind of get the clue that this is perhaps something we want to do, that, that landlords sitting on empty office space may suddenly wink, wink, nudge, nudge, allow startups to be there 24-7. Um, in their office properties that are sitting somewhat vacant uh, in the middle of the blocks. I mean, do you see us doing a return to what happened in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in terms of a conversion? Or are we going to get smarter about it? I hope we get smarter about it. Um, this is a moment in which you know many city governments feel like they're trapped between sort of this real progressive surge in doing stuff for, for, for their poor residents with the fact that, you know, Businesses have never been more mobile. Their offices are empty. There's, you know, the whole amount of pressure which limits their ability to spend. If you're trying to change the world and you've got limited financial resources, the, the natural thing is to take on your regulations. And they should be they should be taking on the regulations around physical space. They should be taking on the regulations that limit conversion. They should be taking on the regulations that make it difficult to start new businesses. Uh, and you know, it's it's this is an ideal time in which to unleash the, the lawyers on these codes and think about how is it that we make change, you know, how is it that we make our city change friendly. Right. And that's really what like the takeaway from your monoculture discussion, at least should be for for city governments is like stuff. Conditions change. And so you need to enable your physical stock and you need to enable your stock of businesses to change as well. It reminds me of the Shakespeare quote, let's slip the dogs of war right now. We need to let slip the lawyers, uh, (laughs) you know, in order to get this moved forward. I I think it's a very good point. And, And we may have that opportunity to do that. It seems like in New York, they're trying. I, I think they're, they're having difficulty with Albany in terms of trying to get people to understand that we need to move quickly, that the, the faster we move, the, the healthier uh, the city is going to be. I, actually, I think that brings up a good point. And you've, you've made some good points about the transition uh, from a city that city center that's focused on monoculture, a CBD, just office, you know, miles and miles of cube farms. Um, into something that is more of a, a living city, more of a, a pleasure city, a consumer city, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what do we need to do? What, what are the areas that that cities and investors need to focus uh, in terms of making that a reality, perhaps in less than 50 years, please, um, in, in, in terms of creating the Sohos of, of the future? So uh, it's about converting space and it's about sort of, in some sense, for larger um, owners who are going to be doing conversions to think about what can we do to make this neighborhood a pleasant place to live as well as a, a pleasant place to um, to to, to uh, work? And some part of this is ground floor retail. So some part of it is thinking about what businesses you have around. Do I have, you know, what do I have a bunch of eateries that are basically only catering for people who are having lunch? Or do we have actually things that are you know, fun for people all the all the time? Do we have a strategy around allowing new new businesses to work to make it fun? And in some parts of America, right, is it safe? Right. 
because in fact, you know, one of the, I mean, I was, I was in Seattle doing an event in February and, you know, I had the, uh, you know, distinct uh, experience of walking past the open air fentanyl market on third Avenue, right? Third Avenue is sort of in the heart of the city, right? Between, uh, right. Three blocks away, essentially from the, from the waterfront uh, between Pike and Pine or the cross streets, right? It's, it's a, it's a shocking thing that you have that much deterioration of quality of life that's being allowed in core downtown areas. I haven't been to San Francisco lately, but certainly you hear the same, the same concerns. Um, this is not rocket science. I mean, you, you need police officers and the, just the Seattle's numbers right now are just very, very low. They're very, very low relative to what they're even budgeted. And they're, um, they're very, very low relative to what would be an East Coast standard um, of, of policing. Uh, so it's, you know, we need to have a, you know, they need to have a focus on how to actually do this and how to do this in a, um, in a way that's, that's reasonably, you know, uh, sensitive to the, you know, to the, to the concerns that have risen about policing as well. So that almost assuredly is going to require more money rather than less money. Um, but, uh, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a doable task. It's just a, a you know, non, not, it's not totally trivial and requires some willingness to spend and requires a bit of, you know, political muscle. And it seems that we've been here before, even within our lifetimes, uh, in terms of cities becoming very dangerous places. And, and, and perhaps to a certain extent, how much of this is in our heads? How much of this is in the rhetoric about how we think about cities and how much of this is is real. Uh, I, I, in, certainly, it's real right now. We have some real issues. There's fewer eyes on the street generally, and, and to your point, there's less policing in some areas. But you know how how do we get out of here? Uh, you know what are the things that that people need to think about in terms of how we make these places feel safe again for people. Sorry about that. I was trying to make sure that the right number was about 12 per thousand in terms of Seattle's uh, police force. But uh, that's that's just a very low number. Uh, uh, I mean, I think even two or three years ago, it was 18 per thousand, whereas a number like Philadelphia will have 40 per thousand. So it's, mm. just, it's just a very low number. Um, so you're right. We've been there before. And I think it is also tied up in, in your question is a sense in which we often tend to overreact to, you know, crime. And from a, a longer term perspective, what we see right now in New York is nothing like what we saw in the 70s right. and, and 80s in terms of homicide levels. It's just a it's just completely non-comparable. Um, now, but people have gotten used to safety in New York, whereas we had, you know, in, in our childhood, we had a good 15 year 20-year increase in steady increase in crime that got us ready to expect that our city would be dangerous everywhere. And it was a deeply unhealthy thing for the city, right? right. I mean, uh, you had to, businesses had to basically pay workers combat pay if they wanted them to work in New York. Uh, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class New Yorkers fled to safer suburbs. This became a ubiquitous feature of, of uh, metropolitan life. Um, and we really did need to come back. Now, what we needed was was city manager mayors, effectively, was that mayors who understood that providing these core urban services was at the center of their uh, their task. So this starts with Koch, who replaces the Lindsay Beam axis of you know unlimited uh, willingness to pay to to you know right social wrongs and you know a character like John Lindsay, mayor of New York for eight years in the late sixties and early seventies, very appealing, almost Kennedy esque figure, um, full of hope. He, he stopped you know Harlem from rioting by just you know walking the the streets of, of the neighborhood and showing his good faith with those people. So there are many things to admire about Lindsay, but he couldn't balance his books. 
and right. he wasn't able to get the you know get the police force to actually reduce the crime levels. Um, it really only is when you you know the Bronx is burning in in 1977 and Koch becomes uh, mayor uh, that you see a renewed focus on public safety. I would say you don't really get uh, a major change until the uh, 1990s when it's it's Giuliani who comes in. And it's hard to remember, right? So many things have happened with Giuliani in the past couple of years that we've sort of forgotten that he was actually seen as America's mayor once right, because right, he was right. an extraordinary job uh, making New York safer. Uh, and of course, that continued under the Bloomberg administration. Now, uh, that safety was really a, a vital part of the city becoming fun again and the city being you know a fun place for a large swath of people. and you know, as much as we tend to think of this as being about sort of middle class, upper middle class New Yorkers finding it fun to play in Manhattan anymore, but the, the reduction in homicides was vastly larger for poor minority members of the city, right? When, right. when the crime gets out of control, it's not the rich people who pay, it's the poor people who pay most. And so um, that, that in some sense, that triumph was, you know, absolutely central to the city becoming both a, a fairer place and a more successful place. Um, the, the, Downside of this, of course, is we one of the things that we did is we you know incarcerated a vast number of young men uh, and we treated millions of others uh, in a way that ordinary citizens should never be treated. Right. Uh, it just you know stopping and frisking them for no particular reason on the street. Uh, that that type of policy and that type of draconian punishment regime is not necessary. Right. It's not like any of the work that has looked at the end of stop and frisk has shown that stopping stop and frisk caused a you know major increase in crime in right. particular areas. Um, and it's, it, you know, and a society that cannot differentiate a three time you know rapist murderer from a three time drug dealer, uh, the former of which absolutely needs to be locked up for a very long time and quite possibly for life. Right. The latter, you know, needs some relatively mild punishment of it all. So right. it's, it's a. I mean, we need to be able to, to lock up those people who need to be locked up and not lock up the others. Um, and, you know, the one thing, while we don't think stop and frisk matters, we certainly think throwing more police resources at the problem does matter. And having, you know, fewer cops around does not, in fact, lead to lead cops to be treat people better. It typically leads them to feel very threatened right. and to resort to fall to to uh, violence more. So I, I think the crucial thing is to take public safety really seriously, to give police chiefs the resources to handle the job, and to also give them the incentives needed to actually deliver on two things, one of which is public safety, but second of which is to treat everyone with respect. And uh, I think things like, you know, regular uh, polls of, of poor minority neighborhoods to see what their experience with the cops are done by something that's independent of the police would be a really good thing. And then, you know, holding police chiefs accountable for delivering that you know, I believe strongly in the in the Drucker mantra, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And right. if we care about respect, we need to not measure respect by the occasional police shooting, which is sort of like, you know, you're going to manage your workforce by occasionally someone kills another person. That's that's your management tool. Yeah. Well, yes, I think your HR team is screwed up when that happens. But it, it's presumably we need measures that are more frequent and less extreme than that. Well, and it seems to me that that certainly the, 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 the cop on the street or even the manager of the police um, have been operating with incorrect information uh, that, that your point in terms of, you know, y y there's no real uh, causation between reducing crime and stop and frisk that we haven't seen that kind of data. But it seems to me that if people actually understand the impact of certain actions that that 
reasonable people, obviously there's always an exception. There's always someone that's, that's, that's a problem person, but for the most part, people don't become a police officer because they want to hurt people. They, they become a police officer because they want to help their community. They want to serve their community, but they're given the wrong information. Uh, they're given this idea that, you know, you, you know, you are the last line of defense, you're a military presence, that you are there to keep the bad guys away. Um, and, and that seems like it's based in a kind of fundamental kind of data construct that is not correct. Uh, and it, you know, I, I wonder if there, there's a way to kind of move that conversation. Maybe we're getting well beyond real estate and, and now into politics, but it, it, it is something that is concerning to me. When we talk about police, we, it, it's very binary. Either we have more police, we have less police, and there's less of this, uh, what we really need, which is a nuanced discussion of, of what's the information you need in order to do a better job of keeping the peace. So I think this is absolutely right. Um, I, I think it's also important to, to stress that typically these policies come from the top. So it's not as if stop and frisk was some kind of a rogue policy right. where cops were they were they were being led directly to that. Um, and you know, it's the nice thing about police reform, which makes it much easier than school reform, is that there is this quasi-military nature of the chain of command within the police force. And so if you have the right orders coming from the top, executed by reasonable, you know, second tier people, uh, it can change really quickly. Whereas changing a school, changing a university, boy, that's almost impossible, right? Because teachers don't do anything that anybody wants them to do. Right, so it's, right. it's a, it's a, you know, and I, I'm not denigrating any, any high school teacher. I'll, let's just say it about myself and my colleagues, just right. to be clear, like, right. like we're it's a nightmare uh, to try and manage us. <laughs> uh, the, um, the, 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 the policing data, um, you're right. It, it, it does exist. So I'll, I'll just reference my uh, my former student, uh, John Teebs, who's currently at Notre Dame, who's uh, got you know one one of these papers on stop and frisk. But there there are certainly others. The other thing I will say is there are police chiefs who understood this for a long time. And um, again, I'm I'm advertising, but this is all free, so I'm not advertising anything that's being sold uh, <laughs> on my city's X course, which is there's a YouTube channel on it. There are interviews that I do of Ed Davis, the former police commissioner of Boston, who was a real champion of smart and sensitive community policing. And he believed very strongly that the way that you actually functionally police areas is by making friends with the community. Right. And there's a whole sort of agenda for how you do that. And it involves basically the police doing lots of little menial tasks with you know ordinary people and, and getting to know them and, and then getting to know the cops. And if you have a police chief who's, who's you know, pushing this thing, it works. And it also kept Boston, Boston safe. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. you know, went on the same time to stop and frisk. And it was, uh, you know, uh, now Boston is an easier city to keep safe than New York. So I don't want to I don't want to judge. But but it was a it was a policy that just led to a very different relationship between the community and the police force. And you really saw this in the very non-confrontational end of uh, Occupy Boston, which was very different than the very confrontational end of Occupy New York. Right. Right. Confrontation rarely ends well. Uh, it seems. <laughs> it's I want to take a moment here to thank uh, this podcast sponsor, Accountability. They are one of the few, if not the only, specialist global ESG consulting and standards firm that has over three decades of experience. And as we often talk about on this podcast, we face tremendous challenges, and the best help almost always comes from points of view, from other experienced colleagues that have specific expertise. And that's why my friends at Accountability support the effort of this podcast through sponsorship. Now, CEO Sonny Miser and his team take a pragmatic view. They, they challenge, they ask the difficult and relevant questions, and see how organizations can make meaningful action. 
Now, to understand and address the ESG issues companies face, it isn't always straightforward or easy. It can be difficult to keep up, especially at the rate things are changing right now, and accountability helps. They apply clear thinking, established expertise, and practical solutions to provide their clients with clarity, confidence, and results. There is a real opportunity here to develop and apply ESG strategies in a way that achieves substantive impact and improves business performance, to win customers, to attract top talent, and satisfy investors. Now, accountability knows that sustainability is not a buzzword. It's, it's about a future where the best businesses transform their long-term performance. So when you're ready to lead, it's time to think about ESG as an opportunity and not a challenge. Visit accountability.org to learn more. Uh, so, you know, just to switch gears just a little bit, you, you know, the, the headline, I, and probably you didn't write the headline. I don't no, know if you did or not, the New York Times, which is, which is 26 Empire State Buildings could fit into New York's empty office space. That's a sign. Uh, and I, I thought that was such a great title to a certain extent, because that is what naturally the real estate industry is going through. Whenever there's a correction, this is what happens. Uh, we have, you know, basically vacancies. You know, most of the buildings uh, in, in, in our cities were built before 1990. Uh, we have a certain level of obsolescence. And there's a, a lot of figures. Uh, Cushman Wakefield has done some great reporting on this uh, in terms of that 15% of our office properties right now are good. No worries. They're doing great. You know, they're fully leased, they're above market rents, they're doing really, really well. That leaves quite a few office buildings uh, that there's a question mark. Either there's some significant reinvestment that needs to take place for them to work for the modern tenant who's looking for something different than a cube farm. Um, and there's, frankly, a good number of buildings that are just useless uh, for an office on a go-forward basis. We're in this natural transition. A lot of people outside of real estate don't understand this, is that we do this. This is how we, we go through a negotiating process with the debt holders. It's difficult. There's a lot of you know tearing up of the old contracts and creating a new mm -hmm. one. Sometimes there's an outright give back to the banks, uh, and that is contractually how our business works. There's, mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with that. No one's broken a rule. Mm -hmm. We've done exactly what we said we were going to do in this kind of environment. It's tough on banks, certainly. It's, it's tough on the debt holders, but it incents them to negotiate. It, it, it incents all of us to figure out how to solve this problem together. So you've pointed out, and very graphically and beautifully in the New York Times to the rest of the entire world, the problem that we have right now with office. Where do we go from here? And based on your understanding of history, your understanding of the economics of how cities work, What's next? There's a question about how much of this will be met by lower lower rents and how much of it will be met by conversion right. uh, of some form. And in many cases, the sort of economically optimal conversion would actually just be tearing the thing down and replacing it with a totally different building and not, and not bothering to you know, gut rehab the thing, but just, right. just you know, get, get rid of it and rebuild. Again, city governments are likely to stand in the way of that, right. but uh, that, that would be a, and in terms of my job, which is at least as often to try to say things that are relevant for government policy rather than to give advice to, to real estate investors, right? my job is to continue to be a voice for greater flexibility in terms of tearing these things down. Right. Now, what's, what's the other part of it, which is, I think, really interesting is, is that it just takes so long for a rent reset for so many of these properties, right? That that you know, if you start it with New York's office rents at their level in 2019, which was really quite high relative to the you know historic norms, 
you would think that a, a the level of, of decline in demand, 20% reduction in rents, 30% reduction in rents, and you just get to that and, you know, a bunch of scrappy businesses that had been priced out would move in and, and uh, you know, there would be a bunch of conversions that would occur. But it's just really slow. And for many of the contractual reasons that you're talking about, those things make it make it very difficult. And you layer on top of that the fact that there are a whole bunch of government rules that make it difficult to do smart conversions as well. The other thing that I'm interested in is, which is certainly a like sign against having too much optimism about speedy, you know, the speedy filling of vacancies is the very long term retail vacancies that we've seen in many parts of the city, long predating anything to do with COVID, right? This was a, a switch to Etail. This was a, a shift in, away from just buying ordinary goods on uh, on street corners, um, and but you know the 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 econ one hundred and one answer is great. You're going to see the rents fall down. New guys are going to come in. They're going to maybe sell uh, experiences instead of goods, but you'll have this conversion. And they've just been very very long time in changing. Now um, I have a student, Erica Moskowski, who is uh, going to uh, the work at the Federal Board of Governors who um, Federal Reserve System Board of Governors, who has a paper on this. And, and her her data suggests that there's so much heterogeneity in what individual retail tenants are willing to pay that, in fact, it often makes sense for landlords to actually just hold out for a whale. That, in fact, rather than sort of let the, let the things drop. So that's something that can slow the system working. And on top of this, uh, of course, there's the issue of the various elements that are built into debt debt uh, arrangements, which actually often make it legally impossible for the, you know, for the owner to cut rents because of the nature of the, of the company. It seems to me that the debt holders are behaving almost like governments from the standpoint that they are underwriting according to rules that applied 10 years ago versus the situation we find ourselves in here, just as the governments are really still into single-use zoning, even though we don't need single-use zoning, the debt holders are still thinking, hey, we're going to have offices. The only way they work is if we have long-term leases with credit tenants and certain kind of uh, hurdles have to be met by retail. Therefore, keep it empty until that happens. I mean, it seems like both the world of debt and the world of government are trying to perpetuate a time that no longer exists. That's certainly true of governments. And it certainly seems to be very difficult for the debt holders to be nimble about, about adjusting on that. I think that's certainly, uh, that's certainly fair. Um, so we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, this, these complaints were also brought out about residential uh, debt holders in the wake of the Great Recession, right. too little uh, adjustment and, and so forth. Um, some of that worked its way out through you know, private equity firms buying large amounts of residential and converting the use to to rental from ownership, which was a really interesting sort of private sector adjustment. I don't know whether or not we're going to see anything in this in that kind of space emerge uh, as a result of of uh, difficulties of, of restructuring debt. But it's it's certainly something to watch out for, whether or not we'll see sort of nimble money step in and try to figure out how to take stuff off the bank's hands and and affect change quickly. Now, part of what we've been observing in terms of all asset classes across the board is that real estate historically has been a relatively passive business. In other words, it's it's long-term, it's slow-moving. We're thinking in 10-year increments instead of month-to-month or day-to-day. Uh, and therefore, we've looked at the value of assets, especially in the office space, according to you know weighted average lease terms. So we've been talking about the leases themselves as if they exist, <laughs> you know, beyond just a piece of paper uh, that we tend to tear up every time there's a recession. Anyway, um, 
as opposed to thinking like the hospitality industry, which thinks in terms of RevPAR, revenue per available room nights, uh, which is basically cash, the money that's coming in and how do you create that, which is a way of thinking, which is more like it's a managed business. And in every asset class, office included, certainly, uh, but also in in, in apartments, in, uh, in, in, in even in industrial, there's more and more of a sense of I have to manage a business. Um, I have to make sure people are coming in the door every day, not just doing a re- lease renewal every 10 years. Um, that, you know, we're slowly shifting as an industry into a managed business, if you will. Is, is this something that you see from your end as you're thinking about how people are working with this? Um, and is this something that, that again, is part of that, that, that city of, of entertainment, of living, of, of the consumer world is requiring us to be a different kind of investor. I think you're exactly right. I think this is exactly what happens when conditions change and you need to have a significant adjustment in how these buildings function, mm-hmm. how these neighborhoods function even. That's not going to happen with a passive buy and hold strategy that just says, oh, we're going to wait for this thing to lease up and just ignore it. And uh, I think that, you know, in some sense, that's what we that's one way to see what happened in terms of the residential conversions from own to rent after the Great Recession was someone came in and thought, oh, I'm not just going to hold these things and and wait for buyers. I'm going to think about a better business model. Um, And that's that's got to happen in this case as well. And, uh, you know, as uh, both of us have an enormous amount of respect for the depth of talent in America's real estate industry. And I, you know. We know that some aspect of this is all, some part of this is already happening, and I'm sure that more will happen going forward. But it's going to require more time, more energy on the part of smart people to actually manage these assets and to figure out how to con, you know, convert them into into valuable space now. And unfortunately, as soon as it's proven out as being, hey, this is a better way to make money, we do tend to jump in there. Uh, that that yes. tends to be where we go. That's, that's <laughs> you right. know, if this is proven out, people are going to do it. Uh, you know, and and we'll see kind of where that goes. Now, you've a, a lot of folks. Certainly. And to be clear, even banks will join in. Once once they figure out that they're going to make money, the banks, the banks are going to be- Absolutely. I mean, you know, as long as the incentives are clear, I think we, we'll move forward on this. The only player that is not guaranteed to adjust is the government. Correct. That's the-, that's the um, Correct. Although there are forces in play. I, I feel like there are some very good folks that are working within both the federal and the municipal governments that are starting to say, hey, we need to yes. switch. We need to change. Yes. Will they do it the right way? Probably not. But, you know, I, I do feel like there, there people are making some some movements there. And you don't have a universal sense, even though there are some political parties that believe that all cities are evil. Uh, but I, I do think there's a respect for the value of cities and, and, and where they're going. How could you not when most of the population is in cities? We skirted about this a little bit. And I think in, in the real estate industry, we've been talking a lot about it, you know, the Zoom problem. You know, we need to get people back into cities and working. We've talked about it in terms, you've talked about it quite eloquently in terms of uh, how the city itself needs to change and how we, we move there. But I, I get a sense after a couple of years, obviously, it's still early. We, we don't know. We're, we're still, to a certain extent, still getting rid of COVID in our lives. But do you think we're going to go back to an environment where everyone goes to work nine to five? Or do you think we're permanently in a situation where there's where there's an aspect of this uh, this Zoom culture, if you will, uh, there's other brands, obviously, but it's an easy way to talk about it in terms of remote. You and I are talking in two different cities right now, and, and this is you know kind of a common part of practice. This works perfectly well for doing a, a, a podcast. That's right. a, it's a it's a great technology for that, and for you know relatively rare meetings that you know are not are not dealing with highly sensitive or highly uh, difficult issues. This works perfectly well. What I think it doesn't work well is enabling. Uh, young and hungry workers to learn how to get ahead. And that's, that's, I think, the, you know, 
the, the sort of central loss is the sort of dynamic element of face-to-face -face relationships, especially for the young, which is what makes it so ironic. And I might even say foolish that so many of our younger workers are the ones who, you know, don't want to go in, who want to right. be able to work from wherever. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have my favorite work on this is uh, the work by Natalia Emanuel uh, and uh, Emma Harrington, um, who look at one large American retailer and they look at what what happens before and after workers go remote. Um, they're able to look before the pandemic. They're able to look during the pandemic. And, you know, you really see a huge difference. You know, there's a 50% reduction of your, your probability of being promoted if you're remote, right? So you really are killing your, your upward trajectory. And one of the reasons for that is they, the remote workers just get a lot less time with their managers. And I presume a lot less time with all sorts of older workers who they actually can learn something from. And I think that's a, a sort of central thing that the young need to understand is that they don't get smarter by being alone and hanging out at, a, at their favorite coffee shop and, and just dialing it in. That this may work in the short run, but it's it's not going to turn them into a more effective uh, entrepreneurial worker in the in the long run. And part of the problem that businesses need to change is that those dynamic benefits are just much more important if you're 25 than if you're 55, right? right. And so um, many 55 year olds are, you know, you know, thinking the advantages of being in their large home office are just so much higher that they don't want to come back in. And if they don't come back in, then the young people don't get anything from coming back in either. Right. So uh, the the businesses are going to figure out how, have to figure out how to incentivize the older people to come back and create a work environment that is you know functional and fun and engaging. And that requires just as we need to, you know, just as governments need to figure out how to make their police forces more, more functional, companies are going to need to figure out how to sort of manage their shared spaces better. And I think functionally, that doesn't just mean a mandate, uh, which is it's tended to be fairly hard to enforce, right. but rather a, a whole amount of sort of social engineering around getting people back and um, getting them to sort of work together in a collegial face-to-face -face environment. And frankly, better real estate. Uh, for them to yep. work in, true, um, true I, I, as well, uh, you and know. safer streets. Yeah, safer streets, but you know, absolutely everything we've been talking about. All right, so just a, what do you think people are missing right now? What are you worried about that 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 investors, but frankly, the world needs to pay more attention to in terms of the continued survival and ultimately the triumph of our cities. So um, we are. We are again doing exactly what I would have expected, which is we're ignoring the next pandemic, right? We we have so the 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 biggest thing we should take away from this is that this kind of thing can happen, and it's unbelievably disruptive. And so uh, I would have thought that a, a smart response to this would have been a large multi-state alliance, uh, a NATO for health that actually you know takes takes this seriously and puts infrastructure in place for monitoring, for rapid response and so forth. So that to me is the biggest you know, failure of, of our globe in terms of, of doing this. So that's, that's the, the sort of the largest thing I think that we are missing as a whole. That doesn't mean that I'm predicting another pandemic tomorrow or next year or whatever, but it's just as a real risk yeah. and we are failing to, failing to, to uh, respond appropriately to it. Um, in terms of, what you know different actors are missing i think the young are missing the advantages of being in the workplace most i think that's their their largest thing they're not confused about the fun of being face to face when they're not at the workplace right they're very right. very focused on that on that issue and that's 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 all to the good um in terms of investors i think it's exactly the things that we've been talking about in terms of the need to change mindset 
and to treat this as an active business, treat, treat the, the physical spaces being active businesses to be managed rather than to sit by in you know, business as usual, uh, long-term uh, buy and hold uh, phases. And um, for governments, I think it's the, the need to focus on how to change the rules in a way that allows our spaces to be more flexible, allows our people to be more flexible, allows our businesses to be more flexible, and the need to sort of do that now, to do that yesterday, and to recognize that, you know, a system that, that you know, where MIT graduates can innovate in cyberspace, you know, without any serious regulation, coupled with a system in which poor people want to, you know, innovate in founding a restaurant or founding a, a, a grocery store, and that, that requires 20 permits to get through. That system is not just inefficient, it's also deeply unfair. Right. And it's a profound sort of, you know, deregulation or faster permitting for the, the ordinary businesses that make city streets come alive is, you know, an issue of social justice as well as an issue of cities coming back. Fascinating. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I have thoroughly, I can't believe that uh, so much time has just passed uh, in this conversation, as is always the case with Professor Glazier. You know, the synapses start firing uh, in, in, in uh, accelerated in, in, in such a level, it's, it feels like an explosion in my head. So uh, we have been speaking with uh, Professor Ed Glazier, uh, Professor of Economics and Chair of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the AFAR podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the AFAR podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFAR is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. <laughs>